Hello, Chris Evans here, and this is the best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio. Coming up on this one, the legendary TV and radio host Chris Tarrant flicks through the pages of his incredible new book, It's Not a Proper Job, which examines his fascinating 50-year career in telly and on this here wireless. The Iceman Wim Hof chills us and thrills us with the paperback release of his brilliant book, The Wim Hof Method, and our very own Virgin Radio's Gabby Roslin and comedian Josh Berry share all about their live show Gabby's Talking Pictures. All of that and so much more to come. So Dapper Dave kick us off with news of who's first. From heavy news to light entertainment, our next guest has had more hits than you've had hot dinners and he's here with some tales of just how he did it. His new book, It's Not a Proper Job, is out now. So here to explain who he tis was, tis is and will always tis be, it's Chris Tarrant! <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think of that? Who wrote that? <laughs> he did. He should be hung. It's all his fault. <laughs> he should be hung from a lamppost so the crows peck out his eyes. <laughs> all right, well... That was shocking. He is leaving next week, well, so, so... Why? Wait till next week. <laughs> <laughs> That's 25 to 10, get rid of him now, as a buffoon. Uh, there used to be a tape somewhere in a well-known Come pub on. around the corner from Radio 2 with yep. my voice going, Evans, you're a buffoon. Do yep. you remember that? I used to play over the bar. I do, as I live and breathe. Half your appearance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah, I know. Your two appearances. I know, and my, my um, uh, very, very, uh, very simple mentions in the book as a consequence of that. So in 1974, from 1974... Um, for basically the rest of the 80s, your life smelled of custard. What yeah. was that like and why was that, Chris Tarrant? Because I rolled about in custard every week of my life, every Saturday. Um, it, was, it was ostensibly a children's programme, but something like 62% of the audience were over 18. Um, it was just great. Tiswas was great fun. I mean, you couldn't possibly do it now. I'd be hung. I'd be arrested. I'd be next to the lamppost with him. And so, so how... It how, was a children's programme, so, but, but it grew. Is it right, because I've said this earlier on on the show, that you had to sort of temper when the water came out and the sludge came out and the custard pies came out because it would affect the the ability of people working on the show to get it out there because things would start to get you know there'd be shortages and outages no no there was no tempering <laughs> done at all when we did Tiswas Revisited, you know, the one we did about oh, Reunited or whatever yeah, a few yeah. years ago, then we walked into all the, oh, you can only have two inches of water. Two inches of water? How can I drown somebody with two inches of water? The world has changed so much. But, and uh, was it, was it the, program, the first ever Tiswas, was it like that from the off? No. It was, it was, it was almost sedate. It was just me and a guy called John Asher. We had, we had one, one chair, one camera, and it just sort of exploded. You know, right. It was it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, at, at the time, I didn't realise quite... We knew how big it was and how popular it was, but and we did the tours all over Britain and all that stuff. But I think it's only now looking back... I mean, there's things like university thesis you can get on Tiswas, you think, and they sort of overanalyse it. And it. You know, it's not political. It was never remotely intellectual. It's just us having a laugh. And when was the first bucket of water swung in anger, then? I think it was... Uh, it was I think it was August the 7th... <laughs> 1973, I think. It might have been the next weekend, I think. But was it like two shows in, three shows in? When did mayhem really ensue? Quite early. I think within... No, we did a very short series, about eight weeks. Right. And we sort of got the germ of it. And we got this massive post bag. And I thought, God, there's people out there, sort of thing. Yeah. So then we did the next series, the proper series. And then we got down to the, the good stuff. Right, and so the writing of it... Because, you know, there were there were set pieces in it. You had amazing performers. Lenny Henry, of course, infamously. Sterling. Uh, uh, Bob, exactly, Bob Cowgy, Sally yourself, John Gorman, um, the Bucketeers themselves, uh, the cage, um, which, oh, the you know... The cage. Tell us about... Just tell us about the cage. How the did it... The cage. Ha- this, like many 
things in, in my life and yours, these things were written in a bar. And we, we had a, this great idea. Why don't we get... Because people were always writing in, can we come in? So said, no, it's a kid show. Can we, mum and dad, come in? No. And we thought, actually, you can come in, but you've got to go in this cage. And they used to get done up to the nines, get their hair done, get their best frock on, and we just obliterated them within seconds. Uh, so um, what was the most... What, what ended up being the most memorable, infamous part of the show? Was it that? Was it the dying fly? Um, the doying fly. The doying fly. Um, I mean, the one that everybody remembers and talks to me about is the famous spliff being smoked in the cage. Yeah, OK. Uh, so this is rock stars in the cage. Yeah, we did, we did a, one, of my, one of my less good ideas. We thought we'd get a lot of celebrities in the cage this week. So we had dear old John Peel. We had Status Quo. We had Goldie and the Gingerbreads, who are a rock band from America. We had Cozy Pal and Co. from Rainbow. We had Lemmy from Motet. So it was quite jammed. And we this is all in one week? <laughs> same show? Well, same show, same I'm cage. Doing, sounds like Live Aid. <laughs> I know, I was all crammed into this cage. So I'm doing a sketch with uh, Lenny Henry. He's dressed up as a waiter or something. And suddenly I'm sort of niffing the air and I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't do, I've never done a drug in my life, but I, I do know. I think, that's marijuana. <laughs> Somebody's smoking a joint. So I left this sketch and Lenny's going, what are you doing? Where are you going? Whatever. And I just pelted this cage with water and anything I get my hands on. I mean, I'm basically ostensibly the producer of a children's television yeah, program. Yeah, smoking, yeah, yeah. Somebody's smoking a spliff. So I drowned it and, and the whole thing stopped. Okay, I've never revealed who it was. You do in the book. Oh, no, no, Rick Parfit. <laughs> you do in the yeah, book. Yeah, okay, it was Rick Parfit. <laughs> Bless him. Um, right, let's talk about, the. I think, the third tentpole um, in, in what I love about you and what you've done over the years, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So this is a show that was originated by an ex-producer of yours and you almost turned down your own show. Yeah, I was too busy. I mean, it sounds pathetic now. <laughs> um, I was too busy. I was, I was doing Capital every day, so much other stuff, spin-offs and all that. But also I was doing Tarrant on TV. So... David Briggs, my producer then, producer for years at, at Capital and then producer eventually a millionaire. And David left to go off into the big bad world of television for two years and he r actually really struggled. He's probably sitting on his yacht today in the Mediterranean, but, but he had a hard time. And he said, I've got this... I, we did a show on radio called... A, a thing on radio called Double Acquits, where oh. the money went up, pound, two pound, four pound, all that. Yeah. And... Um, Brooksy said to me once, I've got this thing, that double look at, so I'm trying to make a TV format. If I get it together, will you come and do a pilot? And I said, yeah, well, I, you know, I, don't, I couldn't do a series. I'm too busy, mate. I'll happily do a pilot so you've got something to take around the network and all that. Because the only other person he knew on television at all from his capital days was Kenny Everett. Now, the idea of Kenny doing Millionaire would... It could have been splendid. <laughs> well done in the best possible taste and all that. Um, so I did the pilot. With, with no real thoughts. And as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, this is actually quite good, I quite like this thing. And then we did, we did one more pilot. My bit stayed pretty much the same. We had the lifelines by then and all that stuff. Um, it started, it, originally it started a pound, and we all went, that's a bit silly, starting a pound. So we started 100 quid and went up to a million and all that. Um, and we, we did the last pilot in the end of July. I raced off for a quick holiday with my family and then we started literally almost the very beginning of September. And Dave Liderman, the, then, the new controller, it had already been turned down once by ITV, so the new controller said, I want this thing, I'm running it every single night of the week for ten nights at, starting at eight o'clock and all that. So we did the first one, we gave away something like £60,000 to one guy, so we thought, because it's huge money, I mean, even that, yeah. even that now is still huge money, most of the Especially games are really worth three yeah. grand and all that. So we did one show. I popped back to Capital, bashed off a bit of radio, came back, and I was walking up, I did a quick sort of office meeting with Briggsy and Co, and we were all sort of like, great, really worked well last night and all that. And then I was walking up the hill for a lunchtime sort of meeting with some journalists about, you know, who wants to be a millionaire and stuff. And this bloke came past in a lorry and wound his window down and went, found a friend. 
And I thought, this show has been out once yeah. anywhere in the world, and that bloke is going for That was 12 hours later, wasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right, Chris Tarrant, it's not a proper job. Stories from 50 years in telly. We've got to go. We're way Good over, plan. Chris. We're what way over here, man. All right, see you Friday, everyone. Have a great Thursday. Bye-bye. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. With our next guest's help, you can breathe easy, or not so easy, depending on how you look at it. His book, The Wim Hof Method, is out now, and here to explain why freezing your bits and pieces off in a bath full of ice is nice, is the coolest cat you ever shall find. It's Wim Hof! Good morning, Wim! Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) How are you today, and um, how much ice and cold water has featured in your Thursday so far? Not yet, I have to uh, admit but I'll go and uh, have my eyes bath, of course, because it's great. <laughs> it is great. Right, so your TV show on the BBC is smashing it. Freeze the fear. Tell us about your experience filming with um, some well-known names here in the UK. How was that for you? Uh, yeah, amazing. Amazing. And uh, you see that the raw, real emotions from the depth, they come up and they feel all the confidence to, uh, to share it in front of so many cameras, like 200 people production there. And they uh, just show their most intimate traumas coming to the surface. It is time for real emotion. And that is this series. Yeah, so why why does that happen? I know it happens. I've experienced it myself. You know, I, I've been ice bathing for a good while now. Why does it have that effect on us? Because th- this bre- these breathing techniques coming from going into the cold is extreme. And so it goes past our conditioning uh, of our mind and body. It goes past. And that's exactly where the hidden traumas are. And then they are able to be processed. And that's it. Again, come to the surface. You cry, you see, you feel, you process, you feel lighter afterwards. And is it because it gets us back to the absolute sort of genesis of who we are and, you know, what we were given to protect ourselves and sustain ourselves on the earth? Exactly. It's the soul itself. I mean, we talk a lot about the soul in the world and religions, etc., but we never got a real halt on it. And the soul is being expressed by our deepest, deepest emotions. And now we found a way to unlock that. Yeah, thanks to you, Wim. You know, I've been a huge fan of yours for years now. I've read your book. I've, I've been online. I've looked at the apps. I've watched countless videos. I've talked to Russell about you. You know, I am an absolute huge fan. And since, since you know, falling in love with what you do, I've begun ice, ice bathing. It has completely and utterly changed my life. You know, this change in body temperature, this a dramatic change in body temperature to get us out of our comfort zone and to unlock, um, you know, something, our, our parasympathetic nervous system, which often goes dormant because because it realizes or it, it senses there's no threat to us and you know and it's not good for us to be in such a sort of amber alert as, as opposed to red alert when we want to be on that particular stance uh, as has benefited me so much compared to say saunas i've been a big fan of saunas for ages but the thing about an ice bath is it it changes the the temperature differentiation in your body as so much so, so much greater and so much quicker and is a much more efficient way of actually firing up all the things that may have slipped or, or you know have sort of gone into sleep mode yes exactly so the, uh, we should learn to own, uh, especially after these two and a half years where, uh, of uh, uh, restrictions and all, 
We have to learn now to tap into our deeper self and get a hold of ourselves. Even the governments were not able to handle what was going on, but we are able to govern ourselves from the depth so much better. And the cold does it. The uh, breathing exercises, they bring it. They bring our innate capacity to regulate our emotions, our mood, and bring down inflammation. It's all there. Yeah, and you talked about, you know, we talked in the past about, is it mind or body? Is it mind and body? But it's neither of those. It's mind-body. Exactly. We are one organism, and in the head, it is connected to neurology throughout the body. And so now we found the keys to open up to the deeper parts of our brain by which we have a much better control over the rest of the body as one. Wim, you have so many fans all around the world, some really well-known faces in some um, really well-known places. And uh, his book, your book, uh, Wim, The Wim Hof Method, is out now. It's been out forever. It's one of these things that will just keep on selling. Um, how do we, you and I and other people who have experienced this, and know it's like magic, it's a miracle, and it's available now, how can we nudge people to buying your book or to getting online and, and to checking out your apps and things like that? Just buy the book and uh, uh, and do it, because you cannot buy health, happiness, and strength, but you can unlock it. After 46 years of experiencing and doing the field work, doing the science, there is no speculation about it. You, uh, we all have a greater potential waiting uh, uh, for us, and this book Sorry that it is my book, but it is showing it. <laughs> no, I get it. Wim, I love you. What are you doing today for the rest of the day? Yeah, I'm going to go with my little son. He's four years old. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I'm 63. He's four years old. Mm -hmm. My older son is 39. Yeah. Man, uh, that, that's another thing. Huh? You, you, the virility goes up like mm. crazy. But, hey. That, that's a part of that. I'm going to ride my bike with him yeah. and, uh, like for 10, 20 kilometers. And then uh, we have great adventures together. Okay, Wim, thank you so much for everything you do. Please carry on and please let us know if we can ever help you because we we, we'll be first in, in the queue. Thanks so much. Love it. All, it's all about love. All right, man. Wim Hof, his brand new, well, no, not his brand new book, his brand new TV show, uh, Freeze the Fear, continues episode five of six. All episodes, previous episodes, available on the iPlayer. It's uh, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. on BBC One, the next one on the 10th of May, and his book, uh, Forever Out There, thank God, is the Wim Hof Method. Please buy it. Please get involved. You will not believe how it changes your life. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. She's the happiest person on the face of the earth and he's always keen to leave a good impression. Together, they're unstoppable. Gabby's Talking Pictures is back at the Leicester Square Theatre in London and here to tell us all about it is the hostess with the mostess and the voice of your choice. It's Gabby Roslin and Josh Berry! Alright, Gab's alright, Josh. Hello, lovely. Good How morning. are you both? You okay? Very good, thank Josh, you. Josh, can you do Gabby? Not yet, <laughs> not yet, but uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm listening and learning. He can do, he's extraordinary. Your James Acaster is now a thing of, of world renown. Uh, well, uh, thanks very much, Chris. Uh, uh, fair play to you. I, I, I love it, Matt. I, 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 I don't claim to understand it. Yeah. 
He's more like James Acaster than James. I mean, it's just it's so good. Uh, I have seen that video of where you give a masterclass in how to be James Acaster. Ah, uh, yeah, I would love to do it in front of him. I think that'd be really funny. He he responded to one of my videos of him saying, um, "Oh yeah, I, I, I laughed a lot of this actually, which uh, on reflection reflects pretty badly on me." <laughs> but like all the best impressions, you sort of do him visually as well when you're doing him audibly. He's got that sort of um, half-eye-closed thing. Someone described him as a sort of tired velociraptor because he's kind of like, you know, uh, swiveling his head all over the shop like that. Um, <laughs> which I think is quite a good description. That's so good, isn't it? Where did you find him, Gabby? Uh, thanks to Alistair McGowan. Right. Alistair McGowan, the master of all uh, impressionists. Because uh, we're doing Talking Pictures again live It's on this Sunday night at Leicester Square Theatre. And um, I spoke to Ali and he said, right, you need to get a team. We need to get a team together. And he said, go and, go and meet Josh. And I looked at Josh online and I kept watching Josh online and kept watching him and then contacted him. And he said yes straight away, which was fantastic. And then we got Jess Robinson and Luke Kempner. So we've got the three of them as a team. And it, honestly, we, we stood up halfway through the show. Yeah. We did the, our first live show uh, four weeks ago. All of us, we all just stood up and applauded them. And it, you just want more and more and more. Because as you just said, watching them, not with outfits on, not yeah. changing their hair, not changing their makeup... They just become these people. Well, that's what your sh so your show, Gabby's Talking Pictures, about the cinema, which you love, of course you do. You know, it has become this amazing platform for young and also established um, uh, impressionists and sort of sort of recreators because they're they're better than impressionists, aren't they? Oh, completely. Oh, and that they, is so kind. No, but you are, <laughs> Josh. I don't think you know how brilliant you are. You're oh, so gosh. talented. But they this is better than therapy. They, they revoice famous film clips. Yeah. So they cast it. Yeah. I mean, there was was a moment with uh, Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, mm. reenacting a very famous film. I think it was it. What was it? I think it was when Harry met Sally. Yes. It was something sort of. Um, it was strange. Kind of quasi-sexual, which felt a bit weird doing doing as Jacob Rees-Mogg with that sort of incredibly uh, lilting voice like that. <laughs> it was <laughs> extraordinary. It really was. And they do breaking news. So they do. They no. do, they actually do these breaking news stories about films, and you have to guess. I think Josh, oh, yes, you I have do some. Oh yes, have one. Yeah, that's correct. I'm supposed to do that. Who was I going to do that as? Jeremy I don't know. Vine. You could do. Why don't Jeremy we do Vine? it as? A, yeah, yeah we'll do it as Jeremy Vine. Okay. You have to guess. See if you can guess the film. Okay. Okay. A forty-something woman has found herself pregnant after using a vegan condom. She is only fifty percent sure of the identity of the baby's father, and in a quest for. Discovering the truth has been known to talk to herself and often writes random things down. Ed Sheeran was recently seen taking a photograph, but incredibly missed the opportunity of a photo when the 40-something woman was seen riding pregnant in a pizza truck. I have no idea of the uh, film because I said taking with the impression. <laughs> Bridget Jones? Yes. 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 Well, well done. done. Well, well done. done. Um, so you are also on a tour yourself at the moment, aren't yes, you? Yes, that's so correct. Got, so yeah. there's two things here going on. Uh, there's LeicesterSquareTheatre.com to go and see Gabby and the gang this Sunday? Yeah, it's Sunday. Uh, can Sunday? I tell you? So we've got um, Keith Lemon, Nina Wadia, Sarah Parrish, Andy Goldstein, James Murray. Is this all this Sunday? Yeah, Tom Reed Wilson. They're all on stage. What a laugh! I mean, you know, again, we're screaming for this show to be on telly so we can all see it, or at least be live-streamed somehow. I know that talks are ongoing with getting it uh, to getting together with a broadcaster or you know some form uh, some way could you not live stream it anyway for the benefit of the rest of us on Sunday who have to go to bed early <laughs> well you'll have to come along no, and but see you it. could live stream well, it though well, couldn't yes, you yes we could and there might be ways of people seeing it soon right 
But not this Sunday, so <laughs> not this Sunday. So we're going to miss out on this gold that's going to happen on but, Sunday. But we'll uh, keep got to buy a ticket. Gold. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I get that. I get the fact you've got to buy a ticket, but we've got to look at the bigger picture here. Yeah, but literally, literally. For this, uh, yes, thank you. For this Sunday, though, yes. and the tickets aren't silly money, and it's also it's early doors because it's a Sunday I night. I understand you're here to get bums on seats. Yes. But I'm just saying that if you if you live stream it, because that can be done, you can live stream. Let's do it. Should we you do it? You can live stream on That's Sunday. That's Instagram live. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll, or, we'll do it. As long as it's sort we'll of. We'll find a way. Because, yeah, I know what you're saying, though. I know what you're saying. It may not be sort of uh, any kind of screen ready because it's different when you're there to when you're not there I get that completely but it's just it feels like again you know a stellar cast for a Sunday yeah. night in not the biggest theatre in the world by the way one of the greatest uh, it live oh it's amazing yeah. the energy in there is, is, oh, is it's so lovely. cool you've done that you've done it before yeah I, I did it on my tour actually it was yeah really really great right so I was I was, I was also mentioning your tour so 14 days in now you're on a sort of uh, it's an Alan Partridge kind of thing because you've created this character who's so successful he has a book now yeah yeah Ray Fubris my kind of neo yuppie uh, political advisor character right, yeah. give us a bit of him so people will engage oh gosh it's, it's, I don't know what I can do pre-Watershed but uh, Rafe is if you've ever been on the King's Road and heard someone speak like that you know all their sort of ease turn into A so say things like Vary and uh, you know and definitely um, that's the type of just any <laughs> overconfident young man in a suit on a train talking loudly about business or right, something this could, be, this could be based on an amalgam of many people sure. a hybrid of headline Partially makers uh, today um, but it's a bit defeffle isn't it it's a bit Alexander defeffle yeah I think it's it's model is supposed to be a young sort of 20 something Boris I think I would say yeah and he's telling the story of the pandemic and how he thinks the government did actually really well so if we haven't I haven't got your your go-to for that how do people get come and see you on tour where do uh, they go for that probably the best place is my Twitter uh, so that's Josh Berry comedy that's it's it's all up there I'm finishing off in Clapham Oz says I've just bought my tickets while listening to Fabi Roslin oh come on thank you putting bombs on seats thank you so what, it, what was the name Ozzy did you say Oz Oz, thanks, Oz. Right. See you on Sunday. Leicestersquaretheatre.com is where you need to go. Um, Josh, great to meet you for the first time. Gabby, always great to see you. Uh, Vast and Rachel, thank you for a wonderful Wednesday. And we're back on Thursday. Thanks for having us. And there's no more to it than that, I don't think. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Okay, we've heard from a bunch of beautiful guests already, but still to come, psychologist Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari takes on anxiety and how we misunderstand it in her new book, Future Tense. Why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. Amateur runner Ellis Cross talked to us just hours after finishing first in the Vitality London 10K ahead of the one and only Samo Farah. He beat Samoa Farah. Once again, this bloke beat Samoa Farah. And impressionist extraordinaire Rory Bremner wows us with his all-new espionage podcast, The Spying Game. So let's get right back to it. Daffy Dave, who's next? You know him as John Major, Nelson Mandela, Tony Blair and Boris Johnson, to name but a few. But he's adding another string to his bow. His new podcast series, The Spying Game, launches next Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. So join us as we go under the covers and uncover the undercover with the marvellous Rory Bremner. Good morning, Rory. Very good. You didn't undersell that. I know. He's leaving next week. We don't know what we're going to do because he writes them as well as delivering them. He's, He's Unfortunately, he's very good. Mm, he's going to go and be a spy. That's what he's going to do. Yes. That's what he's going to do. Everyone's a spy. Uh, Rory, I understand you've already borrowed him this morning. I know. I, I, I borrowed your producer. Yes. I, 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 I gave, we, had, we had a brief uh, conversation about the rules and the guidelines 
uh, which we, of course we should adhere to at all at all times. So uh, yeah, we're, we're going to do that. <laughs> it's great. I'm sorry I can't be with you. I'm sorry I'm I'm deep in enemy held Oxfordshire at the moment, so I, I'm I'm unable to to join you uh, in person, which is just as well because I'd probably hug you and and one thing would lead to another, and I'd have a personal reproduction number of eight. <laughs> See, I think for for many impressionists, Boris is a gift. But for you, he's a bit too easy, isn't he? Well, no, I, yeah, a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't begin to <laughs> secrets, secrets, and uh, yes, I mean, cause he's actually, you know, there's. I started off doing him on a unicycle, I think, about ten years ago uh, when we did our um, coalition show, something like that. And then uh, he develops because he's got that, he's got that sort of, sort of, sort of sibilance, and uh, and he's, uh, he's uh, obviously he's repetition and uh, and Pepper Pig and losing the notes and all that. But I mean. But I mean, honestly, it's part of my job to make politicians look more ridiculous than they already are. But I mean, if, have you any idea how hard that is? I mean, yeah. honestly, a prime minister who brushes his hair with a balloon uh, in the morning is, uh, you know, make that make that more ridiculous. I challenge you. If he is, uh, if he is, you know, well, when he is no longer uh, PM or leader of the Tory party, which will happen, because that's just what happens in life, regardless of what may happen uh, today, tomorrow, or the day after. It'll take a tank regiment, as he said. It'll take a tank regiment to get him out of Downing Street. Whereas, uh, whereupon immediately James Blunt uh, sent out a direct <laughs> message, a tweet to all of his former colleagues in the <laughs> army, saying, I'm, "I'm putting something together." Yeah, what do you do next Tuesday? Yeah. Um, so, who who might you hope um, is the new incumbent from your job point of view? Or one of your jobs' point of view? Oh Lord, from my job point of view, I don't know. I suppose you, you, you'd want something like I don't know, a voice like Trump or William Hague. I mean, the voices, even though I mean Dominic Rab, really Ben Wallace, really. I mean, I look at the cabinet and I sort of think, gosh, really, are there? Are you you long for the distinctive voices. I mean, you mentioned John Major earlier on, and some of them you can make distinctive, and even if they're quite bland, you can make them interesting. But uh, I don't see. I mean, maybe Jacob Rees-Mogg. There's one for you, Chris, um, who looks like something out of Gilbert and Sullivan, and um, could tell you about the countries in Europe he doesn't like. Particularly, Allah, Gilbert and Sullivan. <clears throat> There's Portugal and Italy and Poland and Romania, the Netherlands and Germany and France, Lithuania, Sweden, Spain and Hungary, and Finland and Estonia, Slovenia, Slovakia, and maybe Macedonia. There's Malta, Belgium, Greece, the Czech Republic, and Croatia, and Luxembourg and Cyprus, which is practically in Asia, and Austria, and Latvia, and Denmark and Bulgaria, and Ireland, and if Turkey joins, the whole thing gets much scarier. But now we're out of Europe and no longer be inferior. We're even doing trade deals with Burundi and Liberia. They tried to stop us leaving, which was perfectly absurd of them. It's what the British public voted for. At least a third of them. There you are. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> applause. Come on. You lot. Oh, blimey, Roy. That was amazing. And clearly, you just made that up on the spot. Yeah, that's clearly, not part of totally. your... your you if you recorded that, that is your list. That is 27 countries. No, by the way... I had to cheat and get Macedonia in because I couldn't get something else to off, rhyme with Estonia. Ofcom um, insists we record everything, including your genius. Uh, right. <laughs> so the spying game launches yeah. next Wednesday, 11th of May. Now, you've already done it as a pilot episode, so you know it works. It's a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts. Allure us more. Mm. Well, we've, we've done all of this about 10 or 11, I think, in the series. And uh, I think you mentioned the... Anthony Horowitz is a launch one. Um, we're also uh, launching around Operation Mincemeat, which everyone's talking about now. I don't know if you've seen the film, but a terrific film. And uh, Ben McIntyre is a wonderful storyteller um, and all the better for the fact that these are real stories. And Operation Mincemeat itself, as people would know, is the whole deceit having to try and uh, convince the Germans that instead of uh, invading um, Sicily, which we needed to, uh, to, to push back the Germans in 1943, that we were actually going to go to Greece instead. And that involved uh, um, a, a roost dreamt up would you believe this by ian fleming himself who went on to write james bond uh, ian fleming was working um in the in the, in the mod 
and uh, he wrote the Trout Memo, Ways to Deceive People. And one of number 27, uh, he said, here's a way, but not a very nice way, was you you find a dead body and you put it, uh, furnish him with all sorts of um, papers about the plans for an invasion and you release him into the sea and uh, you hope that he gets taken in and uh, all the papers get end up in high, German high command. And it worked. Um, so it's, it's a series of, of 10, uh, 10 or 11, and just the most fantastic stories. I mentioned I'm in rural Oxfordshire, but uh, here in Oxfordshire, what, uh, 30, 40 years ago, uh, you could have passed a lady cycling to the post office. She would have cycled home, got off her bike, uh, put a cake in the oven, gone down to the end of her garden, uh, into her shed, opened up her radio station and broadcast to the Russians secrets of the American nuclear bomb. So real life contains the best stories, and a lot of them are in the spying game. See, now Rachel is sitting here open mouth uh, you, after you're recounting the sort of the gist of Operation Mince Me. Rachel, you've got to see the film. It's unbelievable, isn't it, Rory? It is. It is. And also what's wonderful is it kind of works for the series because um, as the character, the Matthew McFadden character, uh, wonderful names they've got, Chumley so and uh, Montague. So and he is so good. And he says, God, you know, is everyone here writing a novel? Um, and of course, it is about sort of false narratives. And that's happening even now. I mean, here's one for you. I just realised, told this yesterday, somebody who used to work on BFES. They said it was in the Falklands that we put up a whole fake radio station. Did you ever meet Neil French Blake? Neil French Blake. I wish radio I had. Two- well, Radio 210, he yeah. was reading, and he, he, he discovered Steve Wright and Mike Reed. Mm-hmm. And at the time of the Falklands, he said, oh, hey, I've got an idea here. Why don't we broadcast a radio station in, the, in Spanish? We'll call it Atlantico del Sur, del Sur. And it was an entirely fake radio station broadcasting to the Argentinians uh, who were on the island. And um, so things like they were eating off sheep. You know, they, 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 would, they would kill sheep in the island. And just two or three weeks in, subtly they put into the broadcast that uh, there was an attack of anthrax on uh, on the Falklands, suddenly they wouldn't eat cheap anymore. Um, and these are stories which come out many years later. And it's what Ben McIntyre calls the hidden war. We know about the sort of the bombs and the bullets and the everyday, uh, the things that are happening, the horrors that are happening, because we see them in front of our eyes. But it's the bits that we don't see. And that's what's fascinating. Uh, Rory, thanks so much for being here. Good luck with everything. Please don't be a stranger. <laughs> I won't. Love you to talk to you again. Sorry I can't be there next time. All right, Rory, you're amazing. The Spying Game launches next Wednesday. What a podcast. What a guy. Yeah. Come on. Can he tell a story or what? The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. All right, live from the top of the tower in the sunshine, the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show with our pals at Sky and with our very good friends, ABC. Good morning, Martin. Good morning. (laughs) How are you today? What a pleasure to see you, sir. What a pleasure to see you. You look amazing. So do you, sir. On your Brompton. Yeah, yes. did you see that this morning? Did you yes, see me coming yes. in this morning? Um, keen cyclists. I am. Okay, uh, you are? Yes, yes. Okay, I have uh, Top Gear Friday. Do you know what Top Gear Friday is? No. You're not allowed? You've got to cycle the whole, oh, the yeah, whole yeah, yeah. commute in Top Gear. There's another name for it. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, um, congratulations on the 40th anniversary of Lex Gonna Blow. Where did 40 years go? I know, but seriously, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Since those days of flamboyance in the 1980s. Because it's the anniversary of the album, we can sort of have an anniversary interview like you may have um, uh, been part of on, say, what would it have been, Swap Shop or something like that? Or Yeah, I guess it would have been, yeah. Uh, swap Shop. Questions like, where'd you get your name from? <laughs> Favourite colour? Yeah. <laughs> so, so seriously, how come ABC? I've never heard you answer that question. Before. We always wanted to be... Uh, the first name in the phone book. I don't know if anyone knows what those phone books AAA are now. Plumbers. AAA plumbers. So uh, big A, big big B, and big C. But I forgot about ABBA. No, that's not true. Come on, why ABC? Uh, no, we were ABC, the Radical Dance Faction, back in Sheffield when we first started. Yeah, all right. it was all. 
yeah, we were, that was the full name, and we, we shrunk it down to eight. And what about you and music? Uh, are you and the founder members of the band a music? Because Lexicon of Love was such a complete, mature album. Uh, it's sort of the kind of album you're not allowed to have as a debut album. Well, uh, back then we were very ambitious. Yeah, we'd had a couple of hits, Tears Not Enough, and we met Trevor Horn, a wonderful producer called Trevor Horn. Right. And uh, we wanted to kind of... I think most of our generation, like the guys in Duran Duran and Depeche Mode, you'd seen all the punk rockers, but they'd kind of not gone to the top of the charts. Yeah. So there was a very much a... We were chasing a bit of international pop stardom, I think. So but it you was know, very ambitious. But I know it's, it's difficult to talk about how brilliant you are if it's you you're talking about. But it, do you know what I mean? when it, it, We all heard it. It was such a complete album. Uh, there was a lot of... Anne Dudley did the string uh, arrangements on that record, yeah. yeah, with Look of Love and All of My Heart. But so, I, I remember listening... Because Gary Davis was a massive champion of yours, wasn't he, yeah. on Radio 1? And I remember <laughs> listening to, you know, every new ABC track that came out and the album came out, and we were all just blown away by it. Um, thank you very much, yeah. <laughs> uh, these days, it feels good to kind of come back after 40 years and play with full orchestra and the band. Right. This is our Bijou set today, just uh, for you guys. But, the Bijou boys. And, uh, yeah. We, but we... Uh, there's a cast of thousands already that, hit the that album. That can be or, your yeah. dark web name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and uh, talking of uh, the web, not the dark web, uh, but talk, talking of the web and, you know, sophistication of, um, of technology nowadays, you know, your album was way ahead of its time as far as that was concerned as well. Or at least that's how it seemed to our amateur ears. We wanted to kind of fuse a few worlds. You know, we'd be out on a Wednesday night listening to Earth, Wind and Fire wow. and Sister Sledge. Yeah, and then, yeah then listen to Joy Division and The Fall. So it was kind of mixing up those worlds back then. Yeah, so I think that cool. Went into definitely the thinking behind it. So cool. And you, the whiff of punk was still more than in the air, wasn't there it? There was an aroma of punk, oh, yeah, back in 1980, me. I suppose. But yeah. the, and the thing about that was, regardless of what you were doing in your life, regardless of what your job was or, you know, what your art was or, you know, even what your beef was, that energy, we sort of all deployed that energy for different things. Well, all those bands from uh, Britain obviously went across to New York and there was MTV, so... Mm. Uh, yeah, there was, there was all those crazy flamboyant videos to make, you know, uh, with bands like Eurythmics. With huge budgets as well, and they were yeah. worth it because, you, you know, they paid their way in the, in the end, didn't they? Uh, I do. It was kind of weird arriving in America, though, yeah, at the Vanguard. Yeah, I remember doing a show on the West Coast. It went great, but when we got to Texas, you know, the, instead of a mirror ball, there'd be mirror stirrups. Yeah. There. <laughs> and there was a big kind of perspex kind of sheet in front of the stage yeah. and I noticed most of the guys were wearing cowboy outfits you know and I'm there in my glittering tuxedo with the six piece string section you know that's so a bit Glenn Campbell kind of a, though that's alright it was a Glenn Campbell moment yeah but it was an interesting uh, fusion of those two worlds yeah. and, uh, so how, how did ABC how does ABC how has, has ABC travelled around the world for, as, as a musical uh, I don't know a gift uh, we've just been in Miami uh, you were talking about Miami earlier yeah. I think that's so just been discovering what a wonderful city that is. Yeah, we play some shows there. So are, are you, have you, we get the chance to play all over the world. Yeah. It's cool, isn't it? It's so cool. I know you're so good. How did that happen, Chris? Because, How did that happen? Because you're blooming decades? good at what you How do. That's why, Martin. I don't know. Uh, and the gang. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it says here in my little cheat sheet, you know, uh, Martin was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1986 when he was just 27. And when the band was at its zenith, he says, people who come to see me today now know where I get my energy from, appreciating every moment. Well, that's true. Yeah, that is very true. Uh, yeah, I mean, 27 uh, it was a long time ago for me, but yeah, I did fully recover from that whole experience. But it was tough uh, being at the sort of height of your powers and not being able to do everything you wanted to do through illness. So a little bit of that kind of 
means that I, I take that with me when I climb on stage, you know, definitely. Be- because you're it's up- a privilege to, to be up there on stage. Of course it is. And, you know, it's important to remember that. And we don't always remember that. And we don't always remember how grateful we are in many aspects yeah. of life. But every time we do... Not only does it make us seem like nicer people, but it actually makes our lives better. So why don't we do it more? Yeah. <laughs> I'd encourage everybody to... T- well, the sun is shining today. Day like today. It's, a, it's such a beautiful day today. So. If you and every day. If you can't be happy today, you, yeah. you've got to ask yourself some big questions. Or uh, perhaps you genuinely need some, some help and assistance. Um, you, you're, the album landed Box Fresh. It seems Box Fresh today. You know, every time we play an ABC track on the radio, and I, I've, I've, you know, thankfully been involved in this for, for a while myself now, you know, it's never jaded. It's never heavy. It's, you know, it's fantastic. How does it feel for you today playing this album again? Uh, it's wonderful to be able to, you know, climb on stage and play The Look of Love or Boys and Arrow, All in My Heart. Yeah, you, you kind of grow into those songs, you know, the years roll by. And to look out into an audience and just see, uh, when we play All of My Heart, sometimes people are wiping away a tear, you know, the tears of joy. But a lot happens in 40 years, you know. There are many ups and many downs and, you know, the rise and fall. So, you know, everybody's life is kind of full of a roller coaster. So I think that definitely feeds into the atmosphere at the gigs. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. We all feel it, none of us like it, and everyone seems to be talking about it. Well, our next guest is the authority on it. Her first book, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad, is out today. So please welcome someone here for the promotion of a fundamentally human emotion. It's Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you, Chris. Uh, well, thanks so much for being up so early in the morning <laughs> overlooking New York. Forgive my vocal fry right now. <laughs> uh, it's very New York. I do like it. Tracy, <laughs> what a book. Uh, we couldn't put it down, any of us. So you'll get questions, hopefully, from uh, not just myself, but Vass and Rachel, who co-host the show with us. Um, creativity, you say. You say many brilliant things in the book. Very insightful, very useful to us all. Creativity is seeing possibilities, and anxiety helps us see the possibility that there are possibilities. That, well, that's right. I mean, let's start with the definition of anxiety, which we don't really think of this way, but, but this is what the science shows us. So anxiety is this feeling about the future. It's nervous apprehension about the uncertain future. So if it's uncertain, that means something bad could happen, but that means something good could happen too. So anxiety lives right in that space in between where we are now and where we want to be. And that's the creative space. That's the space of possibility. And that's its uniqueness, isn't it, I suppose? It is. And, you know, we equate it with fear. But fear is certain danger. We know when we're fearful that there's a knife being held to our throat. There's a snake about to strike. So it actually roots us in the present. Whereas anxiety makes us into time travelers. It projects us into the future where anything is possible. And it prepares us to actually make those good outcomes into reality. And that's something we we really haven't equated with with anxiety in our dialogues about yeah, anxiety. I couldn't agree more. And but because or and rather not but but and because it's less certain, we're sort of less certain how to deal with it. And we're almost tempted to turn it into fear just so we can move on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's sort of the three F's, right? It's fear, fight, and flight. Yeah. But with anxiety it does all these other biological things that science is only starting to understand. So for example, uh anxiety triggers more oxytocin in in our bodies. And oxytocin is the social bonding hormone. That makes us actually want to reach out to others. And what's one of the best ways to help soothe your anxiety? Social support. So it's almost like there's this fractal beauty where anxiety within itself contains a solution. 
So how do we know when we're feeling anxious, do you think? I think, you know, you don't need a scientist like me to tell to tell you, because I think we all know what it feels like. It's that it's those butterflies in the stomach. It's that racing heart. But one thing we do forget is that anxiety is on a spectrum. So it's not just this full blown panic. It's not just this dangerous feeling. It's that little tingle. It's that it's following our gut instinct when we know that something's not quite right. And I think we should listen to anxiety like we do our instincts. I think we revile it so much, we fear it so much that we're losing this crucial source of information about things that are important to us, what we care about, our gut instinct about the future. Can we compartmentalize it? Because, you know, if you're not careful, anxiety can, can be sort of low file, low level, but ever present. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we always feel like we feel anxiety uh, just a little bit. We have to immediately suppress it or handle it like it's something to be handled. And what I'm trying to argue for is that, yes, you know, there are, first of all, there are anxiety disorders and they cause incredible suffering. And I never want to minimize that. But when we have just a little bit of anxiety or we have these ups and downs, these these peaks and troughs, I think that's the time we try to listen to it because anxiety tells us something important. So you wake up at 5 a.m., there are these worries going through your head. If it's about work, if it's about relationships, that's your anxiety telling you that there's something to attend to, that there's something that you care about that you can work on. So, so what would be the next best thing to do? So, so we sense it, we feel it. It's the first thing in the morning. We've got a whole day ahead of us. We're yeah. busy. We might be late. What do we do next? Do we write it down? Do we touch somebody about it? Do, uh, we, do we make a note of it and, and go back to it later? Yeah, there's so many things to do. One thing that I think is very useful and it's an experiment you can do with yourself is you have those anxious feelings and you make a plan. You say, well, you know, I'm worrying about work. You know, this is going through my head. Okay, when I get up, you know, it's 4 a.m. now, but when I'm awake, I'm going to take this action. I know that I'm having this problem with my colleague and I just have, I've let it go for, for a month. I'm having this uh, thing that's been behind deadline. I've been procrastinating. I'm making a plan to do it. And writing it down, making that intention, your anxiety goes down. And it's like a signal, oh, you're on the right track. So when you listen to anxiety rise, when you listen to it fall, you get this information that you're you're doing perhaps a really good thing for your life. There's another great quote, and the, you know the the book is full of them. It's an awesome piece of work. Um, you talk about the fact that you can be anxious without worrying, but you can't worry without being anxious. Yeah, worry. Well, worry, and you know, worry is this. It's this fascinating thing because we again we're we're often very. Uh, you know, where we feel that worries can be debilitating and they can in some cases, but worry is actually an attempt to control the future because when we worry, we're, we're, we're planning, we're scheming. And sometimes if that worry doesn't start spiraling out, that worry can actually give us some good problem solving. And the purpose of worry is to think into the future, is to anticipate and plan. So that's why anxiety comes along with it, because anxiety is that feeling we get when we're in the future tense. Give us 30 seconds on today. You're right. People feeling anxious today, uh, Tuesday, the 3rd of May, the day before Star Wars Day, the day before <laughs> May the 4th be with you. Well, what can you say to them? What I'd say is that anxiety sucks. It's, I'm not going to tell you to like it. I'm not going to tell you to love it. But I would ask people to give it a listen, honor it, and know that it's part of you. And like any messy part of us, any sort of vulnerability, it's also a huge source of strength and possibility and grit and creativity. Well, great author, great mind, great interviewee. I have to say, that is pretty good at, uh, what time is it? Five o'clock in the morning in New York? It, it just about hit five. Oh, and <laughs> uh, what's on the cards for today? For you. Uh, well, I have a wonderful uh, talk with my friend and colleague, Reshma Sojani, who wrote a book about women, the future of women in the workplace called Pay Up. 
and we're going to be talking about women and mental health. And uh, and I also teach a class today and my wonderful <laughs> students. And <laughs> well, Tracy, thanks for gifting us some of your time. You're welcome back on the show any darn time you like. Thank you so much. Chris, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Brilliant. What a wonderful lady. Sorry, you two didn't get looking, did you? I just lapped that up, <laughs> let it wash over me. How good is she? She's a wise, wise lady. Dr. Tracy Dennis. Tawari and Future Tense. Why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. It's out now and it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. 37 quid to enter a race that gets you national headlines is a right steal, and our next guest did just that. He won the Vitality London 10K yesterday, beating some bloke called Mo. So here to tell us just how he got his Mo Faster Stripes is the speed demon, Ellis Cross! Oh, I'm going to miss those intros. Mo Faster Stripes, brilliant. Hello, Ellis. Hiya. Hiya. Good, good morning, congratulations. Uh, before we get into the weeds, how do you feel this morning? Um, I think it's only just about started to settle in this morning. I told myself yesterday after the race I'll give myself at least a night's sleep just to make sure it wasn't a dream, as cliche as that does sound. Um, but yeah, no, obviously over the moon. Um, it's quite a surreal, surreal feeling, almost. So you beat Mo Farah in a 10K yesterday <coughs> in a field of 20-odd thousand. Um, I'm presuming many, many more tens of thousands watching. So so how long have you been running for? Um, just give us a plotted history of of you in general please yeah so i mean i've been i've been running kind of competitively for since sort of the age of like 13 really 13 14 picked it up at kind of uh, at school level uh and then joined one of the local athletics clubs um tamworth ac which is originally where i'm from in the midlands uh before moving down to university being based at st mary's university which was Mo Farah's university as well um, in, when, when I turned 18, so for university life. And I've stayed around the area ever since, since graduating with a health and exercise science degree. Uh, now just currently living in, in Teddington and, and training and, and working uh, as well. So to, before to we by. talk to Vassas, and Vassas will talk to you because you have something in common, you may or may not be aware of uh, what you, the commonality that you share. But 2840 for a 10K, you know, sounds very impressive as far as I'm concerned. Is that your fastest 10K time? It is, yeah. Yesterday was an outright PB uh, over both the track and, and the road, um, actually. I think, obviously, I was quite spurred on by the whole atmosphere, the environment, and obviously having getting to race Mo Farah as well. Also helped help that for sure. All right, so here we go. So here we go. So you're running with Mo Farah. Um, did you fancy your chances before you started yesterday? Uh, not at all. I, I was joking actually in work with people. That I was just like, oh, I'm getting to race Mo Farah. Like just racing Mo Farah is a cool aspect in itself. Uh, obviously, I didn't expect to beat him. The guy is like the greatest of all time in, in my eyes, and is a hero to everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, like I say, I still didn't believe it really until I completely crossed the line uh, that I was going to be able to, to, to actually win the race because he's obviously quite renowned for his fast finishes as, as he's shown over the years winning uh, Olympic titles and world titles. Oh, yeah, no, he's quite, he's quite well known for running. There's no doubt about <laughs> he's, that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's quite a popular, quite a popular yeah. man. I think that's his, uh, his leg speed. something to do with his knighthood. Um, <laughs> so, so, but not only are you racing against Mo Farah, but you know, in a field of twenty thousand, it's going to be some pretty other hot elite runners as well. So, oh, yeah, so not only absolutely. did you beat him, but you beat everybody else. How? How come? <laughs> to be honest with you, yeah, I, I'm not. In, I'm not entirely sure either. Um, I mean, look, the domestic side of things in terms of like Britain and athletics is is very strong in itself. Uh, 
having Mo Farah in that race was just uh, an addition. But look, it's one of those things. I saw an opportunity and I kind of had to take it, really. It's quite a daunting thing coming into a sprint finish with, you know, the greatest of, of quite, all time, like I say. Quite but... a daunting <laughs> thing. That's the understatement <laughs> of the century. All uh, right. So, so from what I hear, you were running with him quite a lot, um, almost sort of shoulder to shoulder. Did you ha- have uh, any mid-race exchanges? Um, no, I, I didn't, actually. Um, to be honest, I was I was just focused on trying to make the pace uh as, as honest as possible in terms of trying to make it as quick because I knew that if we'd kind of just cruised around sort of like six miles, then he would he would then just, he would out sprint me no no problem whatsoever. So I tried to just work as hard as possible and I don't think at that current time I was in any place to uh, be chatting or making exchanges. I see. So you did think about that. You thought, uh, you know, I mean, you know, in a sort of fantasy land, if I keep the pace up here, that might be, you know, uh, once in a lifetime, once in a million, once in a billion um, uh, chance to, to, to beat him because yeah. he's probably not ready for this kind of pace and he's not going to want to lag behind the pace during the race. No, no, absolutely. And to be honest with you, I was kind of like almost a bit like settled on fighting for second yeah. in, in a way. Uh-huh. So I was kind of like, let's try and make it fairly quick from here. And then um, I might be able to just hold on to what would be a good result. But then, you know, clocked onto my uh clocked into my mind that you know if i'm to actually do any damage to mo farah's sprinting uh finals like final sprint it would have to be a little bit earlier on in the race to uh to cause Mate, any sort of damage to what is very man. that is very impressive um so uh, at what point did you kick on um was there was it was it was there a couple of kicks or, or, or what i'm take take us through the last sort of yeah. kilometer or 500 meters and take as long as you like by the way <laughs> Yeah, so um, so like that, coming into the last kilometre, I think there was three of us. So one of Mo Farah's like training partners, Moadan, was also there, and and then obviously with myself. And they were having a couple of exchanges themselves about like tactics of how to kind of win the race. Um, but I, I was actually feeling quite strong coming into the final kilometre. Um, then we moved into sort of like half a mile to go, so 800 metres from the finish. Um, and I noticed that Mo Adan, um, Mo Farah's kind of training partner, had dropped off um, a touch. So I was like, right, OK. So now it's just me and Mo Farah running in the streets of London where the crowds are massive. And obviously everyone's cheering him on, bear in mind, because obviously everyone knows who he is. Nobody knew who I was. I just had a number on my vest. I wasn't in the elite start. Um, I was just kind of going with it. And I... It was it, obviously it was quite a surreal experience, but then yeah, I knew with like 400 meters to go, that's usually where Mo Farah takes on the race, takes it by the scruff of the neck and tries to um, obviously finish off with his speed. And he didn't come around me then. And the sort of a, a sharp right turn that's sort of like 100, 150 meters to go. And I just knew as long as I could try and keep Mo on the outside of me coming off that corner, and I can kick off the corner. He's going to have to put a lot of work in to go run a little bit further around me and obviously put a little bit of effort in to, to kind of close that gap of the burst. So, and I've just managed to, yeah, hold on, literally. All right, well, let's keep in yeah. touch. Great to, great to talk to you, Thank mate. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You Thanks, are guys. very welcome. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Thank you so much for listening to this, the podcast of the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show. Don't forget you can subscribe and get it every week from wherever you get your podcast and you will never miss the weekly roundup of all the best bits from our Virgin Radio Breakfast Show with Sky. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.